There have been, from time to time, experiments in utopia. I was involved in such an experiment for many years of my life. It all began with a heavy emphasis on a scripture found in Matthew, the fifth chapter, in verse 48, where Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Many years ago in Ambassador College, when a small cadre of individuals, among them my brother Richard David, comprised the first class in 1947 of only four students and eight faculty, and my father was preaching and teaching out of the Word of God continually, the entire church in the little library room numbered about 36. When I got out of the Navy, it was still somewhere around 100. There was only one congregation in the entire world, so far as we knew. It was not until 52, 3, 4, 5, in those first few years that I was married out of the Navy and beginning to really study for the first time in my life in Ambassador College that we opened up a little auxiliary or secondary congregation that we serviced from Pasadena by driving down to San Diego, California, and then later on up in Fresno. Eventually, as the first few students began to graduate from the college, there were other churches raised up. But in those first few fledgling years of Ambassador College, every time a new student, male or female, showed up on campus and registered to begin classes, they were looked upon as a diamond in the rough. Very much in the rough, but a diamond nevertheless. In looking at everything the Bible says about character building, obedience to God's laws, obedience to the Ten Commandments as Christ magnified them, things having to do with diet and therefore physical health and therefore exercise, things that have to do with cleanliness, both physical as well as spiritual, and of course then the need, as we all recognize it, and many of the things that I'm saying I still agree with 100%, to overcome, to grow, to improve, and after all, in an environment, in a collegiate-grade institution of educational courses, a curriculum that was laden with things such as speech or home economics or history or biology or geography or homiletics or what have you, the idea was to be as proficient as you possibly could, to learn as much as you possibly could, to give the best speech you possibly could, to make the most culinary delights that you possibly could. So some of the girls were taught charm. And in some cases, we may uh, laugh about that a little bit in retrospect, watching girls walking downstairs balancing books on their heads, but probably some of them needed it when you get to thinking about it. We tried to teach some of the men who showed up there. One, I'm not kidding you, rode a horse all the way from New Mexico and came into the environs of Los Angeles and finally sold it and came on, walked to Ambassador College in his boots. I'm not kidding you, this happened. We had a young student ride his own horse from New Mexico to Pasadena, California, and become a member of the student body. So when we talk about diamonds in the rough, we really do mean rough because some of them showed up with absolutely abysmal accents, could hardly talk. I remember my brother even talking about a girl who was a member of a quite a large family that sent, I think, several students to Ambassador College, and she shared the French class that my brother was taking, and they were trying to learn all the usual phrases out of the primer, you know, the textbook, Jean de Dallas, Alleclasse, and 
Mr. Dart remembers that, I'm sure. I entered the classroom with Girard, La Photographie de Tulefeil, or whatever it is. I can't pronounce it, but I see the picture of the Eiffel Tower. And so they were trying to teach her how to say thank you in French. Merci beaucoup. And she says, Murky Bocup, you all. Or what? Now, I think my, my brother was probably exaggerating when uh, he said that's the way she pronounced it. But, I mean, I was in Spanish class with some of them, and we had a lot of fun in that class as well. So we literally thought that to achieve perfection, you need to achieve perfection in how you walk and how you sit or how you rise or how you uh, dress or how you eat or how you speak and how you comport yourself with your fellow human being. And because we were very dedicated to the premise of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness around the world, and we knew that this was like a cadre of specialists who were coming to Ambassador College as so many raw jewels to be honed and to have the facets polished and to become educated and to become literally gentlemen and ladies and to be able to go out in the world. Many of them had not really known and many of them had never rubbed shoulders with people of degrees or college educations or professional people, and they were going to be out here preaching to people who, after all, were professionals. My father very much was from the old school, if you can put it that way, of the conduct of a gentleman involving all of the qualities of character that he learned in reading many of the philosophers and many of the educators and even the life story of many of America's leaders and especially some of the corporate giants who became self-made multimillionaires in the time in which my father was a young man. Those were very impressive to him, and even though my dad actually never went to college, he certainly accumulated in the years that went by far more than the average college education by his incredible amount of reading and study. He wanted to pass that on to these students, so it was sort of a morning, noon, and night attempt to in every way instill poise, bearing, manner, uh, carriage, courage, character, knowledge, everything that we could to take these raw diamonds in the rough and turn out in the experience of Ambassador College a perfect product. Inevitably, that puts pressures on people. And as the years went by, we began to realize and we began to experience a little bit of a backlash as to what some of these pressures really were. I think especially in the area of faith and prayer and healing, there were almost unbearable pressures put on people to be perfect. In the subject of healing, for example, it came to the point where people literally made decisions based upon fear of perhaps gossip or fear of being looked upon as a second-class Christian that didn't have very much faith because we preach so often and so many times, according to your faith be it unto you. And you can wade through if you'd like in an exhaustive concordance, and you can look at examples of Jesus by the dozens of where he healed all that came unto him and how they would put people in the streets and he would walk by and as many as even touched the hem of his garment were made whole. And you can see how it said they brought all the sick and all the afflicted and those possessed with luna demons or lunatic to him and he healed them all. And you can hear of how he walked in and Peter's wife's mother was there sick and he 
healed her. He healed the dumb and the deaf and the blind and raised the dead, literally, and walked on water. There were other great signs and miracles of calming a storm and of doing things involving turning a couple of fish and some pieces of bread into enough to feed 4,000 on one occasion and 5,000 on another occasion. And where the Bible says very clearly that he has healed all your diseases and how Christ said if you have faith, According to a mustard seed, you can say unto this mountain, Be you removed and cast into the sea. And whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do it. Now, couple that with a couple of dozen sermons spanning a couple, three, four years of Ambassador College experience with prayer being pointed out as something you do by the clock. And having set as a standard, which became virtually an unwritten law, of an hour of prayer a day, then crank into your thinking the fact that the average student had to go to morning exercise down on the athletic court, first of all outdoors and later on indoors once we got the gymnasium complete. How well I remember right down from where I lived below Ambassador College, the uh, dormitories, all the boys and the girls out there in their long gray cotton warm-ups at about 6 o'clock. It was still dark in the morning, and they're out there doing just real energetic calisthenics. Well, some of them had kitchen duty that morning to help prepare breakfast for others. But they still had to be there at exactly 6 until about 6.45 or so doing rigorous calisthenics. Then it was time to go to the dormitory and to shower and shave and so on and get to class. And the first class started at 8, but between then and there was breakfast. If you're going to have any time to do what this long-winded minister told you to do and quoted at least 47 scriptures in about a three-hour and one-quarter, a three-and-one-quarter-hour sermon to prove it to you, which included at least one hour of prayer, then the average student had to get up at about 4 a.m., now, once you put all of that on them, and then you said you must also have an hour of Bible study every day. And that study cannot be the same study, because that sort of be cheating, that you're going through in Bible class. Nor can it be church literature. You're supposed to study that anyway. So it shouldn't be. You can't read the plain truth. You can't read the good news. You can't read a booklet and call that Bible study. This has been pointed out out of the pulpit many times. Neither can you take your classwork, where you're going through several classes. You might have at least three that dealt with the Bible, Old Testament survey, second-year Bible, Epistle of Paul. You can't take those lessons and claim that's your Bible study, because that would be cheating. Your Bible study must be one hour of Bible study over and above all your class study. Then you must meditate. I remember whole sermons on the subject of Meditate. I got to where I hated that word, meditate. You can just see somebody sitting there. What's he doing? He's meditating. You know, I'm, uh, I'm just, I never have. My, I've daydreamed a few times. I thought, I think, I guess, every now and then, I think, I think that I think. I will read something and look off into space and think about it. But I never once in my entire life, nor do I intend to, got to a chair, sat down and said, now I'm going to meditate. Click and then sit there for about one hour and stare into space with my mind doing something. I don't know how to do that without looking like an idiot. But sermons told us, do that. 
hour of prayer, by the clock. I'm talking here about analogies that actually built up a deficit. I remember specifically in the Shakespeare Club a guy that actually put together one hour seven times is seven hours, extrapolated, run out, out into several months, said some of you haven't prayed for a month, told you that you're exactly 30 hours behind, how are you ever going to catch up, and so on. And so pretty soon, I mean, here were people, it's like, you know, the wife is shopping and the hubby is going to take care of the packages and she just keeps putting one more on top and he's staggering and he can't see and finally she shoves that one last package up there and he just slumps to the ground. Well, they just added burden upon burden. I say they, we. I was there too in those early days and I was very gung-ho back in the 50s and the early 60s about all these things that we ought to be doing without realizing that nobody could do that perfectly. Well, finally, I began to bring sermons about how you can't really be perfect. And at first, I guess that appeared to be rather liberal and dangerous. The idea that because it says here, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, that it sounded like something very strange to tell people that it's probably not very likely that you're going to conduct yourself in every situation that you're going to go through every class, that you're going to pray, you're going to walk, talk, eat, sleep, conduct yourself on a date, get married, be a father, be a uh, correct uh, mother, or know how to nurture and to rear children, and do everything perfectly. I mean, we may have had, in some classes, girls taught how to wash your face with Fels naphtha without getting a rash, for all I know. I, I mean, we really got down to where there were perfect ways of doing things, you know, and we wanted everybody to know how to be charming and filled with poise and how to smell good. Now, you know, we read that and we see it in news magazines. I see it on television all the time. I mean, anybody can have his teeth fixed or go around with a whole handful of of uh, breath mints. I mean, we can we can solve the problem of partial plates, total plates, water glass, all the stuff you put in there, take them out from Barnard all night, get up in the morning, put them in there, and don't show them to people over a meal. That's not kosher. We teach people don't take them out and discuss it with somebody, even if you're at a dentist conference. Say, what do you think of what these, you know, and then show them to him. Uh, we would teach people how to be gentle, how to be poised. I suppose you could teach a walrus how to be poised if you tried. But literally, we were barking up the wrong tree in dozens and dozens of cases. I didn't know for the first seven, eight, ten years that there were young men that came to that college who never were going to become good speakers. I thought that this thing of change and development of skills that are basically innate to everyone. I always said, if you can talk, if you can say good morning in my classes, I'd have them say good morning or hello or whatever, you can speak. I was wrong. There are people by their background and their heredity and their nature and their upbringing, and I'm not talking about speech impediments, I'm talking about psychological and even physiological or perhaps from, from their genealogical background who are never going to be a public speaker if you make them practice an hour a day for the rest of their lives. They're going to stand up there and stammer and stutter and be nervous and afraid and never have command of what they're going to... Well, look at Dan Quayle, for pity's sake. You're never going to make a speaker out of Dan Quayle. I'm just kidding, of course, but I mean you're never going to make a public speaker out of Dan Quayle. I want to show you what the Word of God does say. I'll turn to Revelation, the second chapter, for a moment and show you a few things about 
what God requires of us. And whether or not we are required in this utopian environment of attempting to achieve perfection in everything, that every one of us talk the same way and walk the same way and have the same shape and weigh exactly the same number of pounds and eat the same kind of diet and do everything perfectly through life. Here in the fourth verse, he says, Nevertheless, and this is the Ephesian church, remember, of the apostles, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. It's interesting that this is the church of God, and it is the church of God during the days of the apostles. How many times have people said, Oh, if I only could have lived during the days of Peter and Paul and John. If I could have known those men, if I could have sat down and talked to them and just seen the Apostle Paul or had known Peter personally, we like to think we would have been better Christians. We would have been closer to God if we could have lived during that day in the apostolic era than we are today. Many people think that. Well, here were people who knew them, who lived during that day. And God says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, a symbol of God's church, the menorah. I know your works and your labor and your patience, wonderful qualities of character, and how you cannot bear them which are evil, another wonderful quality of character, and have tried them which say they are apostles, a quality of character that is absolutely missing in one large segment of God's church, who has never tried any such thing and apparently has no intention of doing so, and are not, and have found them liars, and have borne and has patience, a very good quality of character they had endured, and for thy namesake hast labored and have not fainted. Pretty nice accolades there. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. Just got tired and weary with that first feeling of love and of zeal and enthusiasm. Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen, and repent and do the first works. The point is, I guess, that I'm saying to you, this church was not perfect, but neither were they down and out. They weren't out for the count. They weren't even standing there for a standing eight count. They just had somewhat against them, and God said, you can still repent, and you can go back to those first works. Look at the 14th verse where he's talking about Pergamos. And he congratulated them. I know your works, in verse 13, and you dwell where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name, and have not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, apparently one of their own brethren was slain, and they saw that brutal murder. And they withstood that, and they did not fall away because of it. But I have a few things against you, because you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. You also have them there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly. Actually, all these letters to the churches include similar statements. Look at Revelation 2 and verse 20 for a moment. He says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffer that woman Jezebel. This is the church at Thyatira. And time and again, he said he had something against them. Let's turn to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. I think you all know that Jesus Christ was perfect. But let me ask you this. Was he perfect in knowledge at age one? Did Jesus Christ at age one know all there is to know about 
nuclear physics or electronics. Could Christ, as a boy of three, have come to your home and repaired your telephone? Well, obviously not. And that is not saying that God was limited in some way. It's saying that qualitatively, Christ was a perfect three-year-old. And whatever it is that would be in God's great province and his mind, which is flawless and perfect, expected to be known by a three-year-old in that day and in that society, but beneath those two parents, I'm sure Christ knew it. I'm sure that he was a perfect three-year-old. But perfection is a process toward which we gradually are growing and is not something which is once achieved and then there's nothing more to do because life is cyclical and because life goes on day by day. I doubt very much if any of us have ever lived a 12-hour waking day perfectly. I know I have not. I don't even know if I've ever slept an eight or a nine-hour night perfectly. Uh, I imagine that there has been a time or two in my life, and maybe in yours, where you have sitting, sitting in church or reading your Bible or on your knees or in a spirited conversation with someone else on spiritual things, have gotten through an hour of your life perfectly. And God would smile and say there wasn't one thing, not a breath or a whimper out of your mouth, there wasn't one thought in that one hour that was evil in my sight, that was a perfect hour. Now that, now that, I better be careful, or that would work its way into a sermon, and then I'd get you to feeling guilty a half hour into that second hour when you slipped up. Then you'd think, well, that, that did away with that first hour when I was so perfect back there. And you see where I'm going with that, because that's the way sermons were concocted sometimes. Well, here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, and beginning in verse 8, though he were a son, a son, Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. How could Christ learn obedience? This is not saying that Christ was ever disobedient. It is saying that all of life is a learning process. Education is not something you go to school and you get. And then once you've been there and you walk out the door with the little scroll in your hand, now you say, I have an education. I have now accumulated or acquired an education, and I am educated. Nonsense. Basically, the average collegiate graduate has merely begun to learn all that they don't know, how to acquire or to obtain additional information, some good study habits, some sources to which they might go to learn more, and they have begun a process that should last for all of your life. You should never quit learning. Now, I'm not the world's best example in that regard at all. And uh, if I say anything about the fact that every now and then I take an encyclopedia uh, with me to sit down and relax over it for a while instead of some novel, I actually do both. I've been known to read novels and enjoy them, especially Dudley Pope and uh, C.S. Forrester and people like that who are good writers. Uh, I read uh, Red Storm Rising, for example, and highly recommend some of those because it really helps you understand the world in which you live and the incredible technology in the Soviet Union, the United States, with Red October, The Search for Red October, a fascinating book. But also I enjoy, as I did this morning, I picked up uh, three encyclopedias. I just wanted to go back and refresh my mind on what was available on Valentine's Day, for example. And you'd be amazed at the paucity of information in the encyclopedia, including the Catholic encyclopedia. There's very, very little there, so I don't necessarily recommend that. 
But I always am thinking about something in relationship to a sermon or an article that I want to write. So in connection with the ones I did on Saddam Hussein, I went back and I read a great deal through Ibn bin uh, Talal Hassan's book entitled uh, The West Bank, or The Palestinian Question and the West Bank, I think is a full title. He is King Hussein's brother, whom I interviewed back in 82, and he gave me an autographed copy. And there's a great deal of information in there from many historical sources about the Balfour Declaration and uh, the mandate in 1922 that established the original Palestinian state and Jordan and Iraq and so on. And it was very refreshing to go back and read all of that to just sort of re-educate myself on that area. So if you don't ever do that, and I know a lot of people who don't. I have a friend, uh, several friends, but people that I golf with, who read not even one book per year. And that dumbfounds me. There are many people who do not read a book in three or four or five years. They just never sit down and read any kind of a book. I happen to know that Mr. Ronald Dark is an insatiable reader. He's continually sending me something that he read and saying, you ought to read this. And by the way, the article you sent me, there was a beautiful article that had been written by a man who was a movie critic. And it was so down the line with that article I'd just written on America's bloodlust that has to do with some of these hideous chainsaw movies and these wretched books. I preached a sermon out of this pulpit on that a few weeks back, I believe, and about how they, they uh, display their sin as Sodom and they hide it not. So if you never go to a bookstore and go into the current affairs section or the political or the historical section, and you never buy a new book, and you only just let your mind just kind of wander for entertainment, then you're not growing, you're not developing toward a higher state or making a perfection or something close to it, your goal or your aim. You're just satisfied to be exactly where you are. Jesus Christ of Nazareth knew that perfection is a process and that being perfect today doesn't guarantee you're going to be perfect tomorrow that you must fight and struggle and pray and overcome and resist other influences and call upon the powerful Spirit of God to help you. And it says here that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Not one thing that he suffered was ever something that he brought upon himself. We suffer because of our own failings and our own faults and our own sins. Christ did not. He suffered at other people's hands. And being made perfect... Being made perfect, he achieved a state of perfection at the moment of his crucifixion that is so beyond our ability to understand of how a man can say to those who are in the process of killing him and pray to his father, meaning it, not putting it on, not just saying it, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That defies our imagination to be so perfect so flawless to be utterly bereft of anger or hatred or feelings of vengeance, of taking that pain that you're suffering and feeling mad at the person who's inflicting it, and instead pitying someone who is inflicting upon you horrible torture and pain. Christ, through suffering at the hands of others, became the perfect sufferer. It says very clearly in the book of Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter, how he took upon us, and I preached about that last Feast of Tabernacles, if you will recall, even our emotional and mental anxieties, our fears and our worries and our suffering of that nature, Christ 
empathizes with those, and we're able to give those feelings and place them on his broad shoulders where we do not bear them any further. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And notice then in verse 13, everyone that uses milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He is but a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Again, implying that it's a process, that it is a daily process of the exercise of these truths of God, of God's laws, whether you're dealing now with diet and health, or whether you're dealing with physical hygiene and cleanliness. Is it right to preach a sermon on physical hygiene and cleanliness? That you ought to wash inside your ears, as any mother would tell a five-year-old. That you ought to clean your fingernails, and you ought to comb your hair, etc. Well, of course it is. Because oftentimes, even mature adult people have not had that training as children, and coming together in a church environment will perhaps be actually insulting and being a very bad example to other people around them. I don't think that you or I would be able to sit very long in an enclosed uh, office place or a car or something else with somebody that had a case of B.O. It was about like he'd been, uh, you know, herding a passel of skunks across the landscape. You're not going to be able to stand it. And maybe there's some polite little things you can do. I remember we used to joke with people who go around with a case of these breath mints and we'd, we'd walk up to somebody and offer them one first. Now, you don't always want to take that as a hint. You may or you may not. Maybe if you take one first, it's not as strong a hint. But if you go like this, oh, you know, now that's a dead giveaway. You shouldn't do that. They do that, you know, on the movies. We shouldn't do that to each other. You see that one ad where the husband and wife roll over and she says, good morning. And then they run to the bathroom. I hate that ad. I just absolutely hate that ad. I just imagine all these bacteria in there. It bothers me. There are ways that we can, we can get around those things. But even society and marketing tell us that we should not offend other people. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Now, this word perfection actually means maturity or full growth. And it's talking spiritually of not going back and continually picking over and worrying about and arguing about some of the fundamental things you learned long, long ago. There are some people who never pay attention to that. They are never really totally convinced. There are people who have been keeping the Passover for 40 years and are just absolutely ready at the instant anybody slips them a little mimeograph tract to believe that perhaps they've been keeping it all those 40 years on a wrong day. There are people who are never through picking at the foundation of the fundamental doctrines they learned two decades ago. And that's what he's saying here. That's your foundation. You go on. There's so much more that you need to learn and areas in which you need to be developed. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Notice in James, the third chapter, in verse 1, just back a little bit behind the book of Hebrews, we're very familiar with this chapter about the tongue, but notice what it says, My brethren, become not many of you teachers, I'll paraphrase it in the real meaning of the phrase, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, that a minister or a pastor is going to be under a greater condemnation or judgment. For in many things every one of us offend, is the way that ought to read. Now he's talking to Christians. James is writing to Christians, of whom we already read, it is said in the teachings of Christ himself, 
Be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. But in many things, we, we converted Christians, we who are members of God's church, offend. If any man never offends in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Is there anyone who never says the wrong thing? Well, I'm not one of those. I think that this may add up to something over, you know, 20,000 public speeches. If I throw in all of the tens of thousands of radio programs and television programs and Bible studies and sermons and lectures and classroom hours, I have never yet given a perfect speech, done a perfect television program, done a perfect radio program, or conducted a perfect Bible study, and I doubt that I ever shall. Because in some areas, somewhere, somehow, I will say something that doesn't go down. I've already probably put a little bit of levity in here about bad breath or something that may have hurt somebody's feelings. And that's the evidence right there. I won't go on to exacerbate that problem. I probably already said something out of line that hurt somebody's feelings. I wish you wouldn't say that. Can I look and see what Cheryl said? Yeah, she's all right so far back there. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. And then he says, beginning in verse 5, Even as the tongue is a little member and boasts great things, behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. There are people in God's church who simply cannot get along together because of little slights of the tongue, little things that are said, little innuendos or things that are perhaps cruel or thoughtless that really don't have any any real meaning behind them. Nobody meant to hurt somebody's feelings, but they just say some, some things that aren't that kind, and people get their feathers ruffled. I've tried to preach sermons on that subject time and again, like my yellow pad at the foot of the cross with the blood splat. She did this splat, and you've heard me say that, and so on, and try to get across the idea that there's never a time when we should be, as being on the receiving end of that, so angry and get our feelings so hurt over what someone says to us or about us because Christ was being murdered and was still saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But nearly always we're on the giving end of this and very little on the receiving end. The point that I'm making is that these are Christian people to whom James is writing. In Romans 7 and verse 24 is another example. I suppose what I'm trying to say to you today is not a one of us are perfect. I am not. We are not perfect physically. We're not perfect in our dietary and exercise habits. We're not perfect in our manner of dress. We're not perfect in our bodily carriage and the way that we conduct ourselves. We are not perfect ladies and perfect gentlemen. We're not perfect parents. I am not a perfect parent. I did not perfectly rear my children. I'm uh, tickled to death and perhaps somewhat surprised with the mistakes that I made, that they're as close to me as they are. But by Many different examples I could go endlessly into things that I did that I would love to be able to do differently if I had another opportunity. And I'm certainly not perfect as a Christian, and neither are any of the rest of you. And God does not expect us, my point is, to be placed under such unbearable pressure, nor to be existing in an environment where we are continually doing nothing except making comparisons 
that were like the youngster in Ambassador College who went into the prayer booth and stayed in there one hour because he was so dead dog tired he just had to catch up on his sleep and wanted everybody else to think that he was in there praying. Took an alarm clock with him and wasn't coming out till the alarm clock woke him up. Now, if you'd like to talk to some ex-students who actually did that, I can put you in touch with them. And what that is doing is what? It's causing them to feel horribly guilty. It is imposing upon them feelings of guilt, making them realize they can't measure up to this perfect standard, but they desperately don't want anybody else to know that they're not measuring up. They want to look like they're perfect. And so what is it doing? Destroying their character, making them hypocritical, making them, you know, go into all sorts of duplicity and uh, trying to fake people out. And uh, it's it just not, not the right thing to do at all. In Romans, the seventh chapter, the Apostle Paul gave us these comforting words to which I've resorted many times, where he said in verse 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Yet was Paul striving for perfection? Here is Paul, a man that all of us certainly put, and perhaps wrongly so, and if he were here, he might be the first to tell us this. We put him practically closest to Christ in our evaluation of a righteous man. We put him above Peter because he rebuked Peter to his face on the issue of racism. We put him above the others because he wrote more books in the Bible, because apparently he suffered more, and he wrote about all those sufferings. Paul would probably say, oh, don't do that, and now let's hear him say that. Let's let him tell you what he would tell you if he were here, because it is quite comforting. For that which I would, and I'll read it in modern English, that which I wish I would do, I don't do, and that that I wish I could, that I don't do, and what it is that I hate, that I find myself doing. If then I, that is, I, the physical apostle Paul, do that which I wish I wouldn't, I am consenting under the law that it is good. Now then, it's no more I that do it, but sin that lives in me. For I know that in me, that is, in this human body, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will, that is to want to, to decide to, to hope to, to have the attitude that I, I want to live according to God's laws, is present with me. I've got, I've got that in my mind. It's basically my modus operandi is to be a Christian, to live the way God tells me to, to obey his word. But how to perform it, how to follow through and do it when somebody just spit on me? Or when somebody just slapped my face, or somebody said something wrong to me, or I just got a telephone call and somebody chewed me out over something I didn't do. That I find not. That's the way we are when we're going 10 miles over the speed limit and the police pulls us over. We're not mad at ourselves for speeding. We're mad at this rotten cop that was hiding behind the billboard. And we're ready to chew him out and say, you ought to be out here catching criminals, not trying to get innocent speeders like me. Now, how many times have you had a speech like that ready to give to a policeman, and you said he had to be in my trunk? Where did he come from? He, he was hidden out so well I never saw him. I told you about the one little cock of the walk years ago that was a minister who decided to become all infatuated with his great power, and when he got his little bottle of oil and had all of the power of the minister, he got pulled over for speeding, and he told the policeman in great dignity, you would have no power except that our Father in heaven giveth you that power and so on. I don't know what the cop thought. He thought, boy, I'd better call the fellows in white because this is a real weirdo. No telling what he's liable to say to me next. I better get away from here quick before he pulls a gun and shoots me or something. Because he was given a, a lecture, a stern lecture, by a speeder. I mean, a guy had broken the law. 
But it shows you how far that can be carried. The good that I would or I wish I do, I do not. And the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I wish I wouldn't, it's no more I that do it, but sin that lives in me. So I find that there is a living principle, a law, that when I would do good, there's plenty of evil right around to try to tempt me to do the wrong thing. You ought to read our letters we get every single Friday morning at prayer breakfast. We get letters from people that practically write to us about that very line right there that want us to pray that they will be able to live a more godly life. Women that, that say they can't stay away from men. Men that say they can't stay away from women. And once in a while, men that say they can't stay away from men. And I'm not saying that as a joke, but literally, you do need to pray for people like that. When somebody calls out to you for prayer in that direction, you'd better really pray for them because they've got a chance to repent and they've got a chance for God to clean up their lives and correct the situation. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I think all of you in this room can say that you agree with Paul in that regard. I don't think you would be here if you didn't think with Paul that the law is righteous and holy and just and good. But am I, we can ask ourselves, righteous and holy and just and good? And the answer is no, we are not. We're not yet perfect. But the point is we should not be under such unbearable pressure that we give up. So I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. He doesn't say, O perfect man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. We are able to correct many physical things. But let me just conclude by reminding many, many people who are overweight, don't worry about it. There may be any number of reasons, and some of those reasons, which may be psychological, may be far deeper and far more important than any physical reason, some glandular disorder, or anything else you could ever point to. I happen to know that when we get letters like we did yesterday from a man that says he's in jail, didn't reveal exactly why, and looking at maybe a 10 to a 20-year sentence, and says, I am a heroin addict, that this is a man who desperately needs help. Well, there are people who are not having a problem. They're not sitting in a wheelchair. They're not overweight. They don't have a poor complexion. They don't walk like a farmer behind a mule. Uh, they don't have pimples or crooked teeth or one eye, and they're not bald because they want to be that way. It is because of hundreds of other circumstances, and I can tell you that back in the early days of Ambassador College, it would get to the point that literally people would judge other people by all these criteria which were external, which were external show how many hours you stayed in the prayer booth, how you walked, how you dressed, how you talked, the kind of a speech you gave, uh, how you performed on the athletic court, etc. But they didn't wonder, are you good? Are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you forgiving? A person sitting in a wheelchair that is also overweight and also has yellow and crooked teeth and also has a poor complexion and also is bald can be all of those things, good and kind and gentle, Let's turn to the book of James in the first chapter to conclude. 
Actually, you are going to be amazed. My father passed this on to me one time, and I'll pass it on to you, and I think I have before. He told me one time very seriously when we were having a talk, Ted, you're going to find out, no matter what you think you know from the Bible and even the book of Psalms about the mercy of God, you're going to find out someday that God is far more merciful than even you think he is. And you know, that was very comforting to me. That my father would tell me that. Because a lot of times we do not understand the incredible mercy of Almighty God. In the 13th verse of James, the first chapter, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Don't err, don't make mistakes, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And that includes even the gift of repentance, the gift of that attitude which leads to repentance. Of his own will, not our will, not something we did or we earned or we deserved, he begat us as with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart every filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your lives or your souls. Be you doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And if any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Remember what God said to those churches and what they said in that 15th chapter of Acts in a Jerusalem conference when they were talking about the Gentiles and how let us lay no further burden upon them but that they abstain from fornication and unclean things and so on. And how the Apostle Paul said, let's not impose burdens. And remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees, they bind grievous burdens and heavy to be borne. So believe it or not, good-intentioned people who want to be perfect and who want to actually experiment in utopia to have a perfect society and a perfect college and every youngster that comes there is a diamond in the rough to be turned out as a perfect, flawless diamond through all of these educational experiences can, without realizing it, take those extra steps into pharisaical, burdensome imposition of feelings of guilt, of impossibility of ever making it into God's kingdom, and do the exact opposite of what they're really trying to do, which is to encourage people to use their own initiative and to gain, eventually, eternal life. 
You know that even in warfare and looking around the world in World War I, World War II, the Japanese penchant for following orders and never breaking formation and the difference between what we call Yankee ingenuity and the American society which encourages personal initiative as opposed to just the dogged following of the will of one man. Traditionally, in the field, those who do not have that personal initiative end up getting slaughtered because they're following a dictator and they don't have personal initiative, and those that have the personal initiative will come out on the winning end every single time. So remember, it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I believe that perfection is something we will never achieve until the resurrection. There will never be a time where you will say, I finally made it. I have finally achieved every goal I set for myself. It's now been five years since I've learned to pray for one hour every day, meditate an hour every day, read the Bible an hour every day. I've visited 16 widows a week. I have done all these wonderful things I promised myself I would do. Not one wrong thought ever crossed my mind. Not one bad word ever came out of my lips. I got a five-year track record. If you could ever be that good, you'd be way too good for God. The Apostle Paul was good enough.